This is the Elite Development Podcast, a show with the aim of helping athletes evolve in every element of their careers through real-world advice and experience. I'm your host, Kenny Dussault. I'm a strength and conditioning coach in Calgary, Alberta, with a singular focus on building better athletes. And now, let's get to the episode. Thank you all for tuning in again to another episode of the Elite Development Podcast. Today on the show, I have Theo Fleury. Theo is a former hockey world junior champion, seven-time NHL All-Star, Stanley Cup champion, and Olympic gold medalist. He's a two-time best-selling author of Playing With Fire and Conversations with a Rattlesnake. Theo's mission life in, in life now is to help as many people as possible get to where they want to go. Whether meeting people for brief moments or as a dynamic, inspirational speaker, Theo's intention is to create healing through conversation. He loves people, their stories, and their journeys. He's committed to daily transformation through personal growth, self-reflection, mindfulness, and new action. His compassionate spirit allows others to feel safe and whole through experiencing his vulnerability. He's been awarded the Canadian Humanitarian Award, the Queen's Jubilee Medallion. He's an honorary chief and recipient of the Aboriginal Inspire Award. In 2014, he was awarded with an honorary doctorate in science from University of Guelph Humber for outstanding contributions to the mental health of Canadians. And most recently, he was bestowed with a second honorary doctorate in laws from Brandon University in recognition for his contributions combating child sexual abuse and for his outstanding efforts to promote healing and recovery. So without further ado, Theo, it is an honor to have you here today. Oh, thank you. you the time. Thank you. Yeah, that's... Uh... It's amazing uh, all the things I've been able to accomplish away, away from the, you know, arena. But uh, and it all started, you know, with just me telling my story, right? Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the things that really stuck out to me as I read up on you because obviously, right from day one, you've dealt with adversity that many people can only begin to try to understand. Yet you were still able to accomplish so much on the ice, but then also so much after your playing days. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit to me about, you know, those early years in your life, what hockey meant to you as you were going through these things and, right. you know, what kept you going through all yeah. that? Well, I, I think that, you know, adversity builds resilience in people, right? And, you know, obviously I faced a lot of adversity early on in my life, which created this uh, resilience inside of me that, uh, you know, no matter what I'd gone through, I would always sort of be able to figure a way out, you know, and, uh, um, you know, I, I see in our young people now that, you know, we, because we didn't want our kids or, you know, our younger people to have to go through what we went through, you know, we've sort of created this, you know, bubble around them where, you know, uh, adversity, uh, uh, we try to protect them from adversity, but, you know, adversity builds resilience in people. And, and when you have resilience, you know, you, you know, there isn't anything that you can't overcome or can't figure out, you know? And so uh, through my own, you know, personal healing journey, I realized the gift of adversity, right. And how, how important that was because, you know, from the first time I stepped on the ice, all I ever heard was you're too small you're too small. You're never going to make it. You're too small. You're never going to make it. And what happened was all of this adversity that I faced, right? Cause I was always able to take something negative and turn it into positive. You know, I, I use that as fuel, right? You know, those people saying those things. 
And, you know, I always had to prove myself, right? But I always had the confidence and I believed in, you know, work ethic. I believed in competing. I believed in dedication. I believed in devotion, all those things. And I knew that the majority of guys that I was, you know, going up against weren't doing the same things that I was doing. Right. And, and that's what, you know, uh, and I had to trust in the process. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think just like, just what you said there about, you know, using all of these things as fuel, all those people saying, you know, you're too small, this or that. Cause I know there was one thing I read about you that uh, you were talking and it said, and you said, you know, people counted you out from ever playing a game in the NHL before (laughs) you got there. And I mean, you played what, 16 seasons, you want a Stanley Cup, like all of these accolades are things that most kids, most kids grow up dreaming about achieving Mm -hmm. and you were actually able to achieve them all. And dealing in dealing with this adversity, you know, this is stuff that would break a lot of people. This is stuff that would make a lot of people quit, make a lot of people not want to keep going. Was there anything in particular that allowed you to use it as fuel instead of letting it break you like that? Well, I, I, I think I had a fear of failure too, you know, and, yeah. uh, um, but I was just a driven guy. I don't know if that's DNA stuff or, you know, epigenetics or whatever it is, but, uh, I had this fire inside of me to be successful, you know, um, and maybe it came from, you know, uh, you know, my dad was a great athlete and probably should have played professional hockey at some point but uh, he had a terrible accident uh, where he broke his leg. And, you know, he always, he always talked about that, right. He always talked about, you know, that, that opportunity that, that sort of passed him by. And, you know, we struggled, you know, we, we were poor and uh, you know, there wasn't a lot of money around. And so, you know, my dad's dream became my dream, you know, and that, you know, fueled and, and, you know, I didn't want to struggle, you know, I wanted to have good things in life. And so, you know, all of those things accumulated, you know, created this guy called Theo Fleury. And, and, uh, um, and the thing about it was I always got better, right. I always continued to improve every single year and that's important too. Right. And that's that drive. And that, you know, um, you know, I was always practicing as a kid, always practicing or doing something that was leading to, you know, the ultimate goal that I had, which was to play in the NHL. And, uh, you know, all these, uh, all these kids out there are worried about what number they get picked in the draft. Okay. They always, you know, there's always this, whatever it is. And what I tell them is I say, doesn't matter what number you get picked. Right. Cause there was 415 guys picked before me in the draft. Okay. Cause the first year I was eligible, I didn't get drafted. And then the second year of eligibility, I got picked in this, in the eighth round. So there was 415 guys, you know, that were picked ahead of me. And all I wanted was an opportunity. Right. And the Calgary Flames gave me that opportunity. And I know coming into my first camp that, you know, nobody in the organization believed that I could play. 
And what happened was over that first training camp, I took a whole bunch of non-believers and I turned them all into believers because of, you know, uh, my passion and my uh, attitude of how I played the game. And what happened was, you know, I sit 61st in all-time scoring in the NHL, right? Picked in the eighth round. <laughs> you know, and so I don't know how many guys have played in the NHL in the last 100 years, but I'm 61st. So I was picked 415 and I finished, you know, 61st. And so it's where you finish that matters. Yeah, absolutely. I think you're absolutely right. There is, you know, a little bit of a culture now of, you know, you need to be picked in a certain spot or you need to go to this team or that team. Like I remember, I remember hearing one kid say it was in a conversation in the gym at one point and he told me that, you know, if he got picked by, it was like this team or that team, oh, I wouldn't even want to go. And I stopped him right away and I said, (laughs) are you telling me that if you got an opportunity to play professional sport, you would say no because it wasn't the right team? (laughs) Like, it was just, it was shocking to me. I couldn't believe it. Like, I was was never anywhere near that level playing hockey myself, but I could only imagine if a team (laughs) came knocking saying, hey, we're going to pay you to play the game you love to play. Yeah. Like, how would you, how would you not, how would you not accept that? (laughs) Well, good on you for calling him out on his, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Because every, every kid's dream that plays hockey in Canada is to, you know, make a living at it. Of course. Right. And so few actually get to do it. Well, think about it, you know, and I always, I always say this all the time is, you know, why do we put our kids in sports? We put our kids in sports to create quality human beings. Yeah. We don't put our kids in sports to create professional athletes. And, you know, I do a lot of talks to coaches and parents and stuff. And I say to them, I go, uh, do you guys realize that there's only 700 jobs in the NHL? And guess what? Most of them are taken. Because Ovechkin has a 10-year deal and Taves and Kane and Crosby and Malkin. All these guys have long-term deals. So I say, there's 9 million kids worldwide playing for 60 jobs a year. That's it. There's no more jobs. And they're like, they look at me like, oh, <laughs> oh right? You know? And, and so, you know, the reason why I was attracted to the game, first and foremost, it was fun. But secondly, you know, I learned about life, right? I learned about what it's like to be a teammate. I learned about respect. I learned about consequences, you know, things that I'm going to face out in the real world. You know, when I, when I leave the nest, you yeah. know, uh, it's a cruel world out there, you know, and absolutely. It's, it's highly competitive, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know? And, and so, uh, those lessons that your kids learn in their developing years from, you know, however young they are starting to play and then however long they, they, they play the sport for, you know, that learning piece is stuff you can't teach them as parents. They have to be in a group environment in order to learn, you know, what it's going to be like when they leave the nest. 
Yeah. And I think, you know, that was extremely powerful, even to me, the what you just said about 9 million kids playing for 60 jobs. And I mean, it is reality, but when you think <laughs> about it that way, it just really puts it into perspective. Yeah. So if you're talking to a kid right now that, you know, he wants one of those 60 jobs yeah. and, but he doesn't know, you know, what is it that they need to do right now to be one of those 60 players? Like, do you have any advice where to start as far as obviously being a great hockey player is step one, yeah. But, you know, what else can they be doing right now, whether you've got like a 14, 15 year old kid that in three yeah. years they want to be getting picked? Yeah. Well, uh, you know, I always I always subscribe to the uh, formula of the harder I work, the luckier I get. Right. Amazing you know? how that works. <laughs> you know, uh, and, you know, one thing and, and how do you get like you have to continually get better. So how do you do that, right? Well, that's practice, that's off-ice, that's mental, that's, you know, there's a whole bunch of categories where you have to keep improving in all of those aspects, nutrition, sleep, rest, you know, all of these things. But more importantly, um, you know, coming out of junior, you know, like I was an offensive, like, phenom. Yeah. Okay. Well, I got to the NHL and there's like 200 of those guys playing in the league. Okay. All right. And so there's 20 guys on a team. There's 60 minutes in a game. How am I going to get the most ice time? Not by being an offensive elite guy because, you know, the game is only a small portion where it needs that kind of skill. Right. So, so I had to become a complete player. I had to learn how to kill penalties. I learned had to learn how to take face-offs. I had to learn how to play in the last minute of a period, you know, all of these things. And those are the things that I got better at. And as I got better at it, guess what happened? I led the, getting more ice time. <laughs> I let I led the league in ice time for I think four years as a forward because the coach could trust me in every situation. And so you know, I always, when kids come up to me and say, well, I'm not getting a chance or I'm not getting enough ice time. I'm like, well, are you a one dimensional player? Are you easy to play against? Right. These are the things that, that, uh, you know, that you have to get better at. And so, um, but I believe it's attitude, right? It's, it's attitude where, you know, when one door closes, another one opens, right. And when that door does open, you fucking kick it down. Right. You know, and you you announce that you're here and you mean business and you want, you know, the opportunity. Uh, and and because I had faced a lot of adversity younger in my life, that made me even more driven, more focused, more uh, wanting to be successful. Right. Because yeah. everybody said that it wasn't possible. What I was about to do was impossible. And to me, you know, uh, my dictionary does not have the word impossible in it. It only has possible. And so that's attitude and that's thinking and that's, you know. Um, and I would say that uh, 5% of playing at a high level is ability. 95% is what's in between your ears. I love that because I think I've been I've been thinking about that a lot over just the last few years of my career and seeing that, you know, we've got these players that are, 
they've got all the skills on paper, but they're not successful, whether they reach, whether it's, you know, the midget AAA level yeah. that they start to fall mm-hmm. off or junior where they start yeah. to fall off for the pros. Yeah. And it's always kind of made me wonder. And that's what I think is the thing that gets so overlooked is like you said, what's between the ears. Mm-hmm. Because when you get to those kinds of levels, every player on the ice is good. Yeah, everybody you're, you're not going to replace. There's no, there's not going to be a player in the NHL that is not a skilled hockey player. Yeah. So to so actually maintain a career, like yeah. what are you doing differently? That's going to allow you to play 15 years versus that guy who plays two and is never heard from again. Yeah. It's, it's this, right. And, you know, working in the field of mental health and addiction and stuff, you know, like I, I sort of roam around in the neuroscience space a lot. And, you know, what I've realized is that the brain, you can train your brain. Yeah. Like your brain is very resilient. Your brain was actually designed to outlive, like it, it was designed to live forever. Your brain was designed to live forever. And so we are focusing all on the body in sports, right? But the biggest component is this thing it's the brain and the brain is like a computer and so you can teach your brain to be resilient to be focused to be mentally prepared all those things and when we we've sort of we've sort of neglected that part you know and for me that was my greatest tool that i had because i had the ability but everybody has the ability so what's going to set me apart is how I prepare to do my job every single day. And if I'm more mentally tough than everybody else out there, then, then I'm gonna have I'm gonna have success. Right? Absolutely. And so and, where and we... so and so if you like if you if you look up the word manifestation, everything that I did in my life, I manifested it all because I knew I could do it. And if I was thinking that way, guess what I'm doing? I'm training my brain that I'm already there. Yeah, absolutely. I so- can see it before it happened. And and the brain has that ability because thoughts become things. Yeah. Right? Yeah, absolutely. That's a really, really good way to look at it, I think. So for, again, for these kids that are kind of coming up to those Mm. years in their career that are going to be the make or break time to play professional sport, what are some habits? What are some things they can start doing to begin training the brain? Like you said, because it Mm. is such an important factor. What can they do to start working on that side of things? Well, I, I think, you know, some of the things that I would do, like before I fall asleep the night before a game, I would play the whole entire game in my head, right? Because I see myself skating well, see myself stick handling, see myself hitting the, you know, passing and then, you know, getting those opportunities to score goals. Like I was in my dream, I was scoring, right? I was, so my body was already getting prepared to, to do it already, right? Um, yeah. You know, uh, meditation is awesome, you know, meditating, getting your brain into that, uh, especially in hockey, because hockey is such a frantic sport, right? And and uh, we train ourselves to react in, in our sport because everything happens so fast. Because if I got to think about where I'm supposed to be on the ice, I'm in big trouble because the puck moves faster than I can think. Yeah. And so 
you know, I subscribe to the Malcolm Gladwell theory of 10,000 hours. So from the time I started playing when I was five to 15, when I left home to pursue my career, I put in 10,000 hours of practice. And so I trained myself to react. It wasn't a conscious thing, but I trained myself to react. And so when I stepped on the ice, I never had to think, right? And the guys that have the trouble making the big step are the guys that have to think. And so they, they didn't put in enough work, you know, so that it just became part of your DNA where you're, where, you know, right. Where you've yeah. seen it before. Yeah. So you just react. Yeah. Right. The guys that have trouble are the guys that have to think and in our sport. It's not about thinking. It's about reacting, you know? Yeah. I love that. I mean, it's, you know, it is, it's, simple on the surface like well how you're putting it if just you know the more time and the more effort and then you've seen it a thousand times before so when it happens you're ready for it yeah like when we used to show up at the rink to play shinny in my hometown there was like 50 guys that would show up for shinny and so what did we do we played 25 on 25 <laughs> i remember right? those games those were so always you, a blast. so you learn how to play in small spaces you learn how to give and go, give and go, right? You know, and so uh, it wasn't a conscious decision, but man, you know, it was awesome for development. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I was playing against guys that were, you know, 10 years older than me, right? And so yeah. they're bigger, they're stronger, they're faster. And so how you got to be able to figure out how am I going to, you know, manage or work around, you know, yeah. And I think that's something that's gotten very lost over the last number of years too, is that just free play, right? Like I find mm -hmm. practices now, everything is so structured, like <laughs> so structured. So by the book, we've got to put the puck here at this position yeah. at this time and there. Whereas, like you said, the game is reaction. And yeah. so if everything is structured in your head and then one thing goes wrong, now you don't know what to do. Whereas like just playing shinny 25 on 25 you're going to be reacting to a hundred different things at the same yeah. time. And then that's going to come naturally when you hit the yeah. ice in the game. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh yeah, we don't, we, the, the game has become really structured, you know, and it's unfortunate. I believe the game's way too overcoached to be honest with you. You know, <laughs> they got iPads on the bench. It's like, you know, I don't, <laughs> I don't compute, you know, yeah, that, yeah. You know, the reason why I'm here is because I already did all that shit. <laughs> I, I don't need it shown to me over and over. I know when I make a mistake, but I also know that I'm the only guy on this bench that can overcome the mistake that I just made. Right. Yeah. Which I think is also a huge factor too. Right. Because, yeah. you know, when you make a mistake and then it sits with you for the rest of the game, now you're playing cautious and then there's, yeah. Yeah, like you're, well, you're, you're, just, more. <laughs> you're just reiterating more negativity into the equation. That's yeah. how I see it. I know that a coach would say, well, no, you know, I'm trying to point out something so that you can improve. Well, I'm at the NHL level, and if you need me to improve on this piece of the game, then I probably shouldn't be here. I shouldn't be on the team. Yeah, and right? I mean, I think you're exactly right, like – I think obviously, you know, going over the game and stuff like that is important because then you can see those little areas that you need to make changes. But at the same time, 
like you said, you're reiterating negativity. And if all you're doing is reiterating, hey, you messed up here, hey, you messed up there, change this, change that, the players coming into that next game, you know, during the headlights, no idea what to do because all they've been told is everywhere that they've screwed up. (laughs) No, I agree with you on that. You know, uh, I had, you know, you had throughout your career, um, you know, you have many different coaches, right? Some guys are very technical. Other guys are, you know, motivation guys or whatever. And, uh, you know, I always had a really difficult time with the cerebral guys, you know, because uh, first of all, they didn't play the game at the, at the level that, that I'm playing at. And, you know, they, they thought that by, you know, showing us hours of video that that was going to improve us. No, that, that was actually wearing us out mentally. Right. And so, you know, when you got into the dog days of like February, like end of January, February, where you've already played like 60 games and you've been, you know, like the last thing you want to be doing is fucking sitting in a video (laughs) room, you know, for 45 minutes, you know, watching all the mistakes that, that you're making. Right. You know, I think that's an opportunity to guys need to be refreshed, you know, you know, we don't need to be spending as much time at the rink or, you know, practicing long practices or whatever, because, you know, at that time, you know, uh, because of travel, uh, you know, we're not sleeping great. We're not eating well, you know, we need, we need to rejuvenate, you know, our bodies because our bodies, bodies, the engine, right? Yeah, absolutely. If it's not functioning well, then everything from there is just going to go downhill. Yeah. So, I've really liked just, you know, your take kind of on your own career and kind of what brought you the success that you had as a player and through your career as well. I know you played with a who's who of some of the greatest players in the history of the NHL, you know, that Calgary Flames team you came onto was legendary. And then, uh, then, you know, the Olympic team with Joe Sackick, Mario Lemieux, all of these guys. You know, one of the real goals of this show is to help athletes understand, as I said, what it takes to create successful careers in sport beyond just the skill. Was mm-hmm. there anything from all of these players that you played with that you were able to take away personally and apply to your oh. career, but also that kids can maybe take yeah. from to apply to themselves now too? Yeah. Well, what those guys taught me is that hockey is a team sport. And, you know, if you sat with guys like Mario and, and Joe and Gratz and Stevie Eiserman and these guys, they always said that, you know, I'm a elite player, but as an elite player, I can't win a Stanley cup by myself. Right. And so every single person who's a part of the team plays an important role. And it's my job as the leader to make them think they're better than they actually are. Okay. And that comes with humility. That comes with, um, you know, your personality, how you treat people. And these guys were the most humble guys, you know, they made, they made everybody feel so important and so needed and wanted and all that stuff. And so, um, you know, I, I love and how they treated the fans like, you know, they were they were just super, super, really nice, humble guys. And and yeah. sometimes, 
sometimes, uh, you know, when you're cocky or, you know, think you're better than you are, you know, people can see right through that. Right. Yeah. And uh, I always, I always respected, you know, those guys that, you know, when I got to out there that they would come to me and say, you know, you just need to tone it down a little bit and, you know, we need you to do this and this and this and, you know, and so, um, you know, somebody always asks me all the time, you know, like who's the most important guy in the team. And I would say the guy that makes the coffee in the morning. Okay. And they were like, what are you talking about? I go, well, what happens if you have a shitty cup of coffee? How do you, you, you think the rest of your day is? Yeah. So we used to have this guy in Calgary. His name was Stu. And Stu was like, he worked in the corral, like the old corral, like when it first opened. And then he was, he was the guy that did the laundry, made the coffee and all that stuff. And, and every morning you'd come into the dressing room and he would have the biggest smile on his face. And he, you know, he just loved his job and he was like folding towels and, you know, cleaning our un- dirty underwear and everything, but he was happy all the time. And, and, you know, so I would say, you know, Stu is the most important guy, you know, and he was a big part of our team. Well, and he gets the day started off right. You knew, you knew he was going to be there. You knew he was going to have a smile on his face and he never complained, you know? And uh, yeah. And so, you know, it, it kind of brings everything into perspective when you think that a guy like that, you know, um, just going about his business, you know, just being himself, you know, how important that guy is. Well, and I think too, that's like, it's a good lesson for even the athletes to take away that, you know, you can be that guy in the dressing room. Like, even if you're not the guy that's folding towels and making the coffee, like be the guy who comes in, you're there early, you've got the smile on your face, you know, you're the guy giving the fist bumps, the hugs and everything as everybody's walking into the room. Like, if you're that guy, you get everybody's day started off on the right foot. Now the team's going to be better. You know, those guys make a million dollars a year for 10 years. Those guys. Really? Because they're irreplaceable. That's yeah, that absolutely. Right. You know, they're irreplaceable. Those guys are irreplaceable. No, I love that. Because they are so happy to be in the NHL. Yeah. You know, even if they don't play every game, they just love, love their role. Right. Yeah. You know? I love that. I mean, I think it's, it's so important too. like whatever position you're on in the team, if you bring that attitude and that energy every day, coaches are going to want you around, even if you're <laughs> not the top guy out there, Yeah, you know, a yeah. million dollars a year over 10 years sounds a lot better than not playing at all. So <laughs> well, making 500 for two years. Yeah, exactly. Right. So it's attitude, right? It's mental. That that's meant, that's the mental part of it. Right. That, that, uh, you know, even though you, you're not contributing like a superstar, you know, you're contributing more than maybe the superstar actually is. Absolutely. And right? I think that's the important thing to remember too, right? Is that as you get to these levels that every athlete on the team is good, those are the ways that you can contribute. Yeah. Even if you're not that superstar mm-hmm. anymore, if you're not scoring 50 goals a year, that's okay. Yeah contributed in that way instead. Well, here's a perfect example. So I had 472 points in junior hockey. Okay. All right. And I wasn't, I was 415 guys were picked ahead of me. Okay. 
Then I went to Salt Lake City and I led the International Hockey League in scoring. Okay. I go, I, I get called up to Calgary. Guess what? I'm a fourth line centerman on the Stanley Cup team with the Calgary Flames. But guess what? I got to play against the other team's shitty fourth line. <laughs> okay. And in a Stanley Cup run, you need 16 wins to win a Stanley Cup. And I played on a line with Timmy, Timmy Hunter and Brian McClelland or Yuri Herdina, depending on, you know, whatever. And our line contributed six game-winning goals of the 16 that it took to win the Stanley Cup. Why? Because we were playing against the other team's shitty fourth line. And I didn't have to prepare to play 25 minutes. Yeah. All I had to prepare was for 10, 11 minutes a night. Yeah. Pretty easy to prepare for that as opposed to, you know, the 25. Yeah, absolutely. Right? That's a, and, that's an awesome way to look at it too. Right. And and the more success we had as a line, guess what? The more he put us out there. Well, of course, right? If you're scoring right. if you're scoring game-winning goals, they want you out on the ice. Yeah. Exactly. And so, so another thing so, so you know, that's attitude. Yeah. Right? You can you can because you know, the fourth line guys they get a shitty rep. Right? You're a fourth line guy, but no. You know, that's all attitude. Right? You know? Yeah, absolutely. Looking at it as you get the opportunity to play 10 minutes, not, yeah. oh, poor me, I only get 10 minutes, right? It's the same 10 minutes on the ice, but you're going to make a lot more of it if you bring that attitude to it. And the better I play as a fourth line guy, guess what I'm doing? I'm putting pressure on the third line centerman. I'm pushing, putting pressure on the second line centerman. And those guys, you know, you're creating healthy competition within the team structure. Right. So you're forcing the third line centerman to play better. You're forcing the second line guy to play better because he knows that you're pushing him. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think, too, that's like just the way you took that being on the fourth line, not playing very much and spun that to such a positive thing. I think it's a powerful message for kids out there because I know that's the conversation I have all the time with kids, which, you know, they come in and oh, I didn't get the time on the ice that I wanted to, or, oh, I, you know, I got cut from the top team, but it's because the coach didn't like me or, you know, whatever other reason (laughs) they've got. Yeah. And, but whatever it is, like, that's what I always try to tell them is spin that positive. You know, what are you going to get out of this year being on a lower level team? What are you going to be able to do with that opportunity that you do get, even if it's not what you think you deserve? Yeah. I love the way you did that. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, perfect example, Mark Giordano wasn't drafted, wasn't, you know, had to go to Russia and play for a year. But look at him now. He Team took captain. all of that adversity, took all of that adversity and, you know, made it. I think those are some pretty incredible examples. But uh, one thing I want to talk to you about as well is obviously, you know, as we've mentioned, the adversity and the trauma that you dealt with as a kid was, you know, pretty extreme. And, for any kids out there that are dealing with maybe something similar or dealing with, you know, something in their past that they're trying to suppress or even something ongoing. Mm -hmm. One thing that really stuck out to me about your story was talking about how you were afraid of what it could do to your career to, you know, open up while you were still playing. Mm -hmm. So if you're talking to a kid right now, that's dealing with something similar that has that same fear of they don't know how to come forward or they don't know how to face what they're dealing with. 
yeah. from having been through it, what would your, what would your advice be? What would your thoughts be on that matter? Well, the thing with me is I didn't have a safe person I could go talk to. Right. You know, or there was a perception that there wasn't somebody safe that I yeah. could talk to. Right. And I still think that's, that's here because that's of part of this, part of the stigma attached to, uh, you know, being injured emotionally by adults and teachers and all that stuff. And so, um, you know, if you can find somebody you can trust, you know, I would seek that person out and, and, you know, talk to them because, um, you know, the, my suppression of my secret, you know, caused a lot of damage. Yeah. Not only emotionally, but physically, spiritually, you know, all of these things. And so, <clears throat> you know, I was what, 41 years old when I started to deal with this stuff. Right. And uh, the amount of damage that I caused to myself because I, you know, suppressed, you know, all of this stuff. Um, and a lot of it was fear. And, uh, and I, now that I look back on it, you know, I don't think any damage would have been done, you know, if I would have spoken out, Yeah. you know, I think there would have been enough, you know, uh, responsible people that would have been able to, uh, first of all, hear this story. And then secondly, do something about it, Yeah. you know? Um, but my perception was, you know, that that wasn't the case. Of course. Um, but, uh, um, you know, the, the thing is, is, is the longer you keep it inside, the more damage it's going to cause, you know, in, in the long term, right? The effects on the nervous system, the effects on, uh, you know, your physical health, um, your emotional health, your spiritual health. So, um, you know, I always make myself available, you know, I'm very accessible. And yeah. so, you know, if, if you don't have anybody, there's always me, you can reach out to, and I'm, you know, I'm always, uh, willing to listen to anybody's story. Right. Yeah. And well, I, I appreciate that so much about what you do now. Like, I think it's such an important thing to have for people to understand, you know, that they aren't alone with whatever it is they're <laughs> dealing with and have people like yourself that are accessible not only to friends and family but to the public as well so yeah well and 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 another thing is is in you know in my 15 years of research uh those of us who have mental health challenges we're in the majority of course we're, we're not in the minority right and you know but because we have all of these campaigns mental health campaigns that say one in five well why first of all why are we shaming the one person that has mental illness. And then secondly, why are we telling the other four that, that they're fine? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And in my experience, it's actually five and five, you know, Absolutely. I think over the course of your lifetime, you're going to experience some sort of trauma, you know, and it doesn't have to be as extreme as mine, you know, trauma can be very subtle. Um, is that uh, there's always somebody who's willing to listen. Yeah. To the story, you know, and if the first attempt fails, you know, find, find the next, there's always avenue. someone else, <laughs> right. Find the next Avenue. Right. Because, you know, not a lot of people have the skill to be able to listen. Yeah. 
right? And so, um, you know, don't be discouraged by the first experience, you know, be encouraged by the fact that you found the courage within yourself, which, which you know, takes a tremendous amount of courage um, to ask for help. And it's completely okay to ask for help. Like, yeah. It's okay. I think that's an important thing for people to know as well, because, you know, there is, especially in the world of elite sports, you know, being around it, working in strength and conditioning, I see it all the time where, you know, a kid comes into the gym injured and they go, no, 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 it's okay. I'm still going to lift heavy today. And I'm going, no, you're not like, you're (laughs) like, you're in pain. I'm not throwing a bar on your back and making you try to squat a new personal best. Like, but it's the same thing when it comes to, you know, something emotional like that as well, that, people don't want to say anything because they feel like it shows weakness or whatever it is. But I know you've spoken a lot about this and I couldn't agree more that it's such a show of strength to be able to realize you need help and ask for it. Yeah. But as you said too, you know, a lot of people don't have the skill to listen. I know that trauma is something that is, you know, it's out of a lot of people's depths. So for myself and other people that are working with kids that are coaching and have that sort of position with a group of athletes, what can we do better that if somebody is to come to us as that person that they trust to, you know, talk about these issues they're facing, what can we do better to, you know, actually be there and be an effective outlet for them? Well, I I think you just got to go with your gut, right? Cause you can see it. You can see, you know, especially when you're dealing with kids on a daily basis that you see a lot of, you know, when they're up, you know, when they're down, you know, when they're in between and, you know, it's in those down moments where you can be that person that say, Hey, you know, like I see something, you know, is off today. Is there something you want to talk about? And you, you might get a little bit of pushback and, you know, you'll hear things like, no, I'm fine. I'm good. Well, that's an indication that they're not. Okay. Yeah. And then you say to them, I just want you to know that I I care a lot about you. Okay. That's the reason why I'm working with you is because I'm trying to make you the best person, not the best athlete, the best person that I can make you. And so I see certain days that, you know, that you are struggling mentally. And I just want you to know that I'm here to listen. And I'm going to listen without judgment and I'm not going to take the information and tell anybody else. This is between you and me, right? And I'm here to help you in every aspect of your life. I'm not just your strength and conditioning coach. You know, I'm the one constant relationship that you have in your life where you know that I'm going to show up. Yeah. Right. So you say those kind of things and then you take that, you take it down to a real sort of personal spiritual level that they may not be getting in the outside world. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I like that because, you know, I've definitely had those had the beginnings of those talks, but I think just haven't found the right way to kind of dig deeper in those times where I might, where I might need to. And like, that's myself personally. I know ultimately with a lot of people. Ultimately what is coaching? Coaching well, is asking the right questions till you get the answer from that person. Of course. Because if the light bulb doesn't go off for them, right? Yeah. They have absolutely. to they have to experience the aha moment. And as a coach, it's your job to 
ask the questions so that they get to the light bulb moment because the light bulb moment not only rewires their brain and their nervous system, right? You know, they fully experience what it is to go, Oh man. Yeah. That's what you've been telling me this whole time. <laughs> that's what you've been trying to get out of me this whole time. Right. Oh, like when you're trying to teach a guy to do, you know, the proper squat or the proper stride or whatever it is. It's about asking more and more and more questions so that he has that light bulb moment. So when it sticks, it's there. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, the same thing comes with the mental side of it as well. Right. And yeah, uh, yeah, I love the way you approach that. Just, you know, really breaking it down, not just kind of surface level. Hey, is everything okay? But (laughs) being able to let them really understand that if something's not okay, you know, this is between you and me. Like, and I think that's part of my job. Part of my job as a coach you know, my title is strength and conditioning, but there's a whole bunch of other things that are in between the lines that you don't fully understand that I am like, I'm here for you to make you the best human I can make you. We're using strength and conditioning as the tool. Yeah. Right. But, but there's, there's so much more to it than that. There's for so sure. much more to it than that. Right. Absolutely. And so I know we're getting right near the end of our time now. And I just wanted to first thank you so much for, you know, all of that. I think the mental health side of sports is something that really needs a lot of attention. Yeah. And just on that note, the last question I have for you is, can you summarize what working on your mental health can do for an athletic career? Because I think that's something that a lot of kids don't maybe understand the importance of. And so, you know, by, taking steps to improve your mental health, how can that affect you as an athlete, your longevity in sport and the levels that you're playing at? Yeah. Okay. So the average height was six feet. The average weight was 200 pounds in the NHL when I was playing. So I was five foot six, 150 pounds. So physically on paper, I can't compete at that level. Okay. So what set me apart from everybody else between my ears? Okay. And, uh, you know, I competed at the highest level because I realized early on in my career that 75%, 80% of the guys that I was playing against weren't willing to die in order to win. I was. Okay. And because I was, competing at that high level, those six foot three, 230 pound guys didn't want any part of me. Okay. And I could take them on the ice and do whatever they want. Cause I knew they wouldn't push back because they didn't have that, that killer instinct of what it takes to compete at the highest level. And then the other 20% of guys that were willing to compete at the highest level, that's when the game got fun. Cause now I got to dig deeper inside of myself to find something that I can compete at that level. Right. Yeah. And so that's attitude, right. That's attitude that, uh, you know, I never took no for an answer, right. No was never part of my thing, but you know, how I worked in practice, how I, you know, was away from the rink, like everything led up to, puck drop right yeah you know um and 
when I first came into the NHL, all I wanted to be was like a solid NHL guy, play 10, you know, 20 years, you know, just being a reliable guy. But what happened was because I, I worked at my game uh, and worked at the mental side of the game, that allowed me to play 15 years. That allowed me to become a superstar in the NHL. Because when you think about it, <clears throat> I don't know how many guys have averaged a point a game in the NHL. Uh, maybe less than a hundred. Absolutely. Right? Of, of, of the history of the game. Yeah. And I'm one of those guys. Right. So, you know, there's lots of different ways to have a professional career. Right. And there's lots of avenues, right. The, there's the KHL now there's leagues all over Europe. Um, you know, I've played, I played with a lot of guys who spent most of their career in the minors who made a great living and all that stuff. And so, um, uh, you know, first and foremost, love what you do, like love what you do, every aspect of it, whether that's off ice, mental training, uh, practice, playing the games, traveling, you know, all that stuff, like enjoy it, you know, because it's the time of your life, right? Especially young people. I always say, you know, from 14 to 18, if you have that dream of, of making it to the, to the NHL or whatever it is, the next level, the highest level you can play at, like that's the time of your life because you don't have kids. You don't have bills, right? You know, th that's your time. That's your time to, uh, you know, sort of, it's going to make the rest of your life a lot more comfortable, a lot more easier. But if you don't work and you don't love what you're doing, then do something else. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. Cause you, if you don't have passion, you know, then it's going to be really hard. Right. Absolutely. But if you have, but if you have passion and, you know, I, I always said, you know, I'm, I'm never going to let anybody outwork me ever. Right. Sometimes they did, but my attitude was, you know, I'm never going to let people outwork me. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, I think that's gotten lost a little bit, the, the work ethic part, you know, because the work ethic guys play for 10 years and make a million dollars a year. Yeah. Right. Because those guys are invaluable. And the, and, and the, the, the coaches, the scouts, the managers, the owners of teams know that those guys are few and far between. And so those guys, those guys play for as long as they want. Right. Yeah. You know, and, you know, to make $10 million over 10 years, man, that's pretty good. It's pretty good, you know, pretty good way to, to look at it. Even if okay. you're not that all-time superstar, that's no. a pretty, that's a pretty good life. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, be good to the fans, be good to the people that look after you, be good to the, you know, all that stuff, you know, just be a good guy. Try to be a good guy. You know? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I want to say thank you again so much for taking the time for me today. I really appreciate, you know, the insights into your own career, your own life, and, you know, so many great takeaways for young kids out there right now. Mm -hmm. um, if anybody is listening to this interview and wants to get in touch with you, you know, just about anything we talked about today, yeah. what would be the best way for them to do that? Just go on my website, theoflurry.life. Sounds and good. I'll make I'm, sure that's written out in the show notes. So and then I'm on all, I'm on all the uh, social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn. So, yeah. 
So everybody, there you have it. This has been the Elite Development Podcast with Theo Fleury and Kenny Dusso. Thank you again for tuning in to another episode of the Elite Development Podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, I would greatly appreciate if you subscribed and left a review for the show. As well, I would love to hear what your biggest takeaways were from the episode. My contact info is linked below. Send me a message and let me know what you thought. As always, I'm your host, Kenny Dusso. Thank you again and see you next time.